0: So I want to talk to you guys about Singin' Dog Double Reads. Singin' Dog Double Reads is an online double read shop and one of the largest suppliers of high-quality and affordable professional and student reads for oboe and bassoon in the USA. Visit them at www.singindog.com to see all of their products, and you'll be glad you did. That's Singin' Dog Double Reads.
1: Hey, let's talk about Jenna Ingles' reads. She has built her business on providing high-quality, handmade reeds, education, and a sympathetic ear to oboists across the country. When you order from Janet Ingle Reeds, you get prompt communication, reeds, or cane handcrafted to your specifications and cheerful, friendly customer service. All orders are mailed within one week, sometimes much faster. Single orders or monthly read subscriptions are welcome, and she'll work with you to find the combination of response, resistance, stability, and flexibility that is right for you. Podcast listeners can use the code DISH, all caps, for 10% off their first order at jennetingle.com. That's J-E-N-N-E-T-I-N-G-L-E dot com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz.
0: And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists,
1: bassoonists, and the people who love them.
2: Do you get anxious when you perform?
3: Um, It depends. Sometimes I do, but. I always.
2: Well, no, that's not true. I don't know. I always get anxious for, like, recitals.
3: I think a lot of times when I think about something coming up, like, I don't experience a ton of nerves, especially immediately before, but if. I'm like, oh, in five days, I'm going to be standing on stage doing this. Like sometimes I'll get like a wave of adrenaline or something kind of projecting myself up there, but not too bad usually.
2: Those waves of adrenaline continue for me throughout (laughs) (laughs) those five days. (laughs) They get closer and closer. (laughs) I usually end up having to text or call my wife and make her reassure me that whatever I'm doing is not a big deal. Right. Well, you know what helps me? And this is really weird. I know
3: it's different for different people. Um, but the more like gown and like high formal I'm wearing, the more I'm nervous. Like, I don't know. It makes it like a really big deal to me and so Uh I find like my mentality has really helped if I have like some cool shirt I usually have like sparkles on it or something but then like a nice pair of slacks and it just keeps me a little more like Not casual about my performance, but not like, oh, my God, this is it, blah, blah, blah. And Mm -hmm. the times I've worn, like, evening gowns and stuff, I have a harder time. But then when Melissa Bosma was here, she was like, oh, for me, it's the exact opposite. Like, I get in the zone getting in my gear. Like, if I've got a fancy dress on and I'm doing my makeup and stuff, that's like uh, putting on a costume. You know what I mean? Mm, that's a good point. Yeah. So it's different for different people, but I wish I was like that because I'd love to wear fierce dresses and, like, <laughs> eleganza, you know, going on stage, <laughs> but it's not me.
2: Don't you have a cool, like, don't you have, like, a a song that you listen to or something, as I recall? I have a
3: couple like pump you up, go to things in the couple of hours before I do like a big performance, like a recital or something. I will listen to um, and watch. The, watching is the big thing because I derive a lot of my excitement about performing. For me, it's about getting in that headspace of like, I love what I do and I can't wait to go do it, which it's mm-hmm. easy to get out of that zone as we approach something we're feeling a lot of pressure about you know Mm -hmm. so how I try to get myself in that zone is watching other people who love performing and are very charismatic on stage that when you watch them you're like I can't wait for my next recital or I can't wait to get on stage I love what I do that type of thing Mm -hmm. so I try to channel that feeling that I get when I'm in the audience watching someone throw down and been like, I can't wait for my next recital. Uh, uh, (laughs) So for me, that's, like, Freddie Mercury and Queen, um, old Judy Garland clips from, like, musicals. And um, shout out, I hope this isn't too, like, Weird, but there's this <laughs> – um, it used to be on YouTube. It's no longer on YouTube. You have to get to it through the IDRS videos. But um, they put the videos up of the Julee Fox competition. Uh-huh. And a couple of years ago, Nancy Belmont – shout out to Nancy Belmont. Oh, uh-huh. uh, Nancy. And she's playing one of these pieces, and there's just, like, this technical, like, and she nails it. And then there's a page turn immediately after, and as she's turning the page, she's got this like smile like yeah.
2: <laughs> and uh, Yeah, exactly.
3: That those three clips, like Freddie Mercury, Nancy Belmont and Judy Garland, like
2: <laughs> Oh, I
3: love it. Get me in the zone of like, let's go, my bassoon's an electric guitar, and I'm gonna rock out.
2: <laughs> what about you? well I usually have to downplay it a lot in my head Mm -hmm. I usually have to tell myself you are not a surgeon if you completely bomb nobody's dead (laughs) (laughs) I don't know I just I, I hold on to a lot of like um memories of like like performance failures from a really long time ago, mm-hmm. you know? And I'm not that player anymore, but I still, like, my body holds on to it. And I'm like, what if I do that again? But it's like, that was 15 years ago. You're not going to do it again. Oh, yeah.
3: the In my worst mental moments, the what if and the potential uh-huh. for disaster can really eat you up inside, I think.
2: Hmm. So I usually, like, a couple days before – um one of my performance anxiety symptoms is just insane dry mouth so I'll start hydrating mm. like 2 or 3 days before and then um I will do a lot of score like listening to the pieces with the score solo recitals are the things that make me the most nervous like if I if I have a like an orchestra concert or anything like that I'm it's not nearly so bad it's more excited rather than just you know anxious mm-hmm. um but i'm it's starting to get better like i've been forcing myself to do it more mhm and it's starting to get better and it's like every time you do it it becomes less of a big deal you're like okay well i did it and it wasn't perfect but it wasn't terrible so i'll probably do it again and the next time i'll probably feel more comfortable and then you do it again you're like yeah i did feel more comfortable and like yeah you know, it wasn't perfect, but it wasn't terrible. And I think every time it's just like an average. Do you remember when Alex Klein was talking about that, like managing expectations? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that really helps me a lot.
3: One thing that really helped me, too, was reading the talent code, the Daniel Coyle talent mm-hmm. code, where, you know, he talks about wrapping the myelin and that type of thing. And mm-hmm. then this thing clicked in my head of like, oh, if you do the work – The potential for disaster, it's actually not there the way our psyche tells us it is.
2: Exactly.
3: Like, if you do the work and you wrap your myelin, objectively, your body is going to know what to do in the moment. Exactly. And so that was a big threshold thing of like, okay, then that means the performance anxiety and whatnot is dealt with months and months and months beforehand when you're wrapping that mile in. And if you do Uh that, then you can trust in, I've done the work, and this is going to go just fine.
2: Unless your brain takes the wheel. Yes. Brain take the wheel. I'm not going to
3: sing. That's bad.
2: (laughs) So we asked our listeners uh, what they do for their pre-performance zone. Yes. Yes. And we got some amazing responses. Can I start with Claire Brazeau, friend of the podcast? Please do. (laughs) She said, I have a concert in two hours, and my biggest priority at the moment is eating poke. (laughs) 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 I love her. That
3: is, though, uh, one thing I haven't quite figured out is, like, you don't want to be starving. You don't want to be um, low blood sugar, but you also don't want to be stuffed. And so, no. like, what do you eat beforehand? That's one thing. If people have it, you know, figured out, please email
2: eggs. me. Eggs. Yes. Okay. I would eat eggs. That's a- a, just enough to get me through, not enough to make me sick, just, you know, just a little protein. Okay. Mm-hmm. Eggs. Um, Blue Moon Bassoon
3: says, I like to drop some calming essential oils on a handkerchief and then take a few deep breaths. Also, hey to Amanda. Yeah, that's good. Deep breathing in general. You know what I mean?
2: If you're... Lavender essential oil. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, Daniel says, I love to sit in a dark room and take deep breaths in silence. It calms me down a lot, helps keep nerves to a minimum, and helps get my body and mind in alignment. I love that. Just sensory
3: deprivation. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't it interesting, though, how different people are? Because that would freak me out.
2: Really? Yeah.
3: Like, if I make the moment too big in my head, then it freaks me out. Like, here it comes. Here it comes. And so usually I like to, um, definitely before walking on stage, collect my thoughts and that type of thing. I don't just, like, you know, randomly walk on stage, not in the zone. But if I zone myself up too much... Then I can freak myself out. Isn't it interesting how different people are? Yeah. Andrea says, I like to take a long shower, put on nice clothes, do my makeup, do my hair, and a little bit of perfume I feel by preparing myself for the performance I am taking care of me. I love that.
2: I love it. A la Melissa Bosma. Yes. Uh, Stefania says... It's her aim while practicing too much is not to fall out of love with the pieces. This I related to so much. A thousand percent.
3: That repertoire fatigue. And there have been so many times, like 10 days, two weeks beforehand, that I've been like, okay, can I just perform today? (laughs) Like, I'm ready to go. I don't want to, like, have to maintain this for 10 days. Like, let's just go. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready.
2: Yeah, you, like, peak just a little bit too soon. <laughs> mm.
3: That's a difficult bounce, too, man.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: All right. Uh, for auditions, I practice measured breathing, listen to upbeat music, clean out my instrument. For performance, I practice measured breathing and go through all my keys with cigarette
2: paper. Oh, that reminds me of something else that I do. First of all, that's very practical and excellent advice. <laughs> But I also try to make sure that I go to a repair person, mm. like, you know, not, it doesn't have to be, like, immediately before, but, like, at some time in the month preceding so that he can just check all of my key work, check the tenant cork, so I'm not, like, running scenarios in my head where my oboe's going to fall apart on stage or a spring is going to break. It really helps the anxiety.
3: Oh, yeah, Definitely.
2: Mm -hmm.
3: Anna Bloodworth says, listening to music, shutting out the world while I clean out my bassoon and eat bananas and sparkling water.
2: Oh, so fancy. I love it.
0: Today's episode is brought to you in part by Double or Nothing Reads. You know them. They're the company that's dedicated to providing excellent handmade oboe and bassoon reads to discriminating double reed players of all ages and abilities. And good news. Double or Nothing Reads has recently expanded to sell double reed tools and supplies, gift items, and more. This includes knives, knife blades, thread, staples, cane, bags, and resources for students. Better yet, as authorized Fox and Yamaha dealers, they offer an extensive range of oboes and bassoons for all levels. Additionally, they sell quality used instruments on consignment. And if you're looking for private oboe lessons and can't find anyone nearby, Double or Nothing Reads offers oboe lessons via Skype. Visit their website, doubleornothingreads.com, for good quality and
1: affordable reed making supplies and resources, lessons, instruments, and much more. Everyone knows that Genda Industries is known for their reed knives, sharpening, and overall amazing quality and service in the double reed world. But there is so much more going on at Genda Industries. Did you know you can get oboe and bassoon reeds from Genda Industries Artisan Mall? The Genda Industries Artisan Mall is like a farmer's market filled with talented local and regional reed makers selling their reeds. It's a great way to try out some new reeds from new makers. Who knows? One day they may be your reeds for sale. Add the code DRDGenda, all caps, no spaces, at checkout and get 10% off any Genda reed knife, maintenance kit, reed knife sharpening book, cutting block, and reed tool roll visit them at www.GendaIndustries.com. Oh, and they're more than just reed knives.
2: We are thrilled to welcome to the podcast, George Sakakini, professor of bassoon at the Eastman School of Music. Welcome.
4: Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for this opportunity.
2: Um, I would love to start by asking, how did you start playing the bassoon?
4: Okay, well, I think my story is probably like most other bassoon players, at least in, in the framework of it all. Uh, I was playing some something else. I started in as a musician in middle school uh, on the viola, actually. I joined the middle school orchestra, and um, I also joined a youth orchestra, and I absolutely loved playing music and uh it was just you know something that just made such a an impression on me and I had decided to be a professional musician already, but I didn't really know how that would play out at that point. And uh an important thing happened to me near the beginning of this process, which was that my parents took me to a concert. So if there are any parents listening, please Take you know, go to school on this, take your kid who likes music to a concert, okay? <laughs> um, and this concert completely changed my life, actually. Uh I don't remember what orchestra it was. It was a chamber orchestra of some kind. I don't remember what they played, but they played A piece that had an extremely prominent English horn part. And uh I don't know why, but I just completely became captivated with the English horn. I just loved it. Of course, I didn't know that to play English horn you needed to be a noble player <laughs> and all of that. I just saw this thing. I saw it in the program, and and, uh, and then I went about my business after that. And some months later, you know, in the band room or the orchestra room there at the middle school, I uh, found uh, you know a storage room, and I started rummaging around in there, and I found this case. And I opened it up, and I saw this thing, you know, and it was like pieces and tubes. And, and I thought, oh, maybe this is an English horn, or maybe it it is an English horn. And I just got kind of excited, and I figured out how to put it together. There was like a a Rubank book or something in there, some kind of fingering chart or you know, some kind of information. And there were some reeds in there, too. They were really disgusting, actually, <laughs> now that I think back on it. But, you know, it's amazing. Uh uh, how you can, you know, put, you know, some old reeds in water and then somehow they make make a noise. So I figured out how to kind of get this thing together and I started sort of lowing on it, you know, kind of like, you know, you know just making sounds without <laughs> much, uh, you know, know-how about how to operate the thing. And, of course, I got noticed by the band director doing this. And once he noticed that, that was it. You know, I was a bassoon player. There's no more viola for you although I still kept playing viola in the, in the orchestra, but he put me in the band. So that's kind of how it got started. You know, uh, when I discovered it actually wasn't an English horn, it kind of didn't bother me. Because, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, it was cool. You know, it was a bassoon. I was the only person who was playing the bassoon uh, at that school. And, uh, and that's, that's something that a lot of bassoonists experience, I think, when they first start. The uniqueness of it. I think most of us are the kind of people that like to do things that other people don't necessarily get attracted to. For example, um, I mean, this has been a a theme in my life, and it still is today. Uh, I'm always, you know, attracted to things that you know others are not. (laughs) And the discus, you know, was perfect for that, of course. So, for example, I mean, I don't know if you two can relate to this. Uh, but back uh, back during the uh, videotape period, you know, like in the 1980s mm-hmm. and early 90s, when people used cassettes, you know, video cassettes to record TV shows and play movies.
2: I'm very familiar. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, are you familiar?
4: Are you familiar with the Beta style of VCR? Uh,
2: Did you ever hear of Beta? I don't okay, remember. Well, <laughs> okay, okay.
4: Well, there were two technologies out there. Okay, that was Beta, which was a Sony product, and, and VHS, which was the greater majority. Of, you know, that 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 was the technology that was more popular. However, Beta was better; the quality was better. Mm-hmm. It was just one of those things that it just didn't work. You know, it didn't sell as well. Nah, they didn't get the market. So, of course, I bought a Beta VCR. I could have had a VHS, but no. This is an example <laughs> of what I'm talking about. You see, anyway. This is what bassoonists are like. You know, this is what we're like. We, we like playing the bassoon because other people aren't really doing it. It's unique. It makes us kind of special. And um, so that's why I didn't kind of, I didn't really mind that it wasn't an English horn after all. But, um, you know, I think that uh, that still, that that desire to have a voice like that English horn just never really left me. And I don't mean the sound and the tone I mean the tone of the thing necessarily, but uh, I mean of the English horn. I mean, obviously, the bassoon sounds different and it's, it's, a, it's a more somber sound. But I, I have to admit that uh, that's still that's a kernel in my mind. It's one of the musical influences that was uh, formative, I think, for me. So that's how I found the thing, and then you know, then the dominoes fell. I mean, and the youth orchestra, the conductor got wind that uh, you know I, I I had tried a bassoon, so snap you know I'm a bassoon player in youth orchestra now too because they didn't have enough bassoons and uh, the youth orchestra uh, also required that uh, everyone take lessons so now I'm taking now I needed to take lessons on bassoon and that's kind of how how it all got going and it just seemed like a a really fun thing.
3: That's so interesting that what attracted you to the bassoon wasn't the bassoon at all. Um, What are some of your musical influences?
4: For me, uh, from the beginning, as I mentioned, I, you know, I <clears throat> I didn't play the bassoon right at first. The thing that attracted me actually was just it was music itself. I mean, I I just I don't know why, and it's still like this for me. I just love it. You know, I'm just I'd rather listen to music than do most anything else. And uh, a good thing since I do it all day long, <laughs> every day. I listen <laughs> to other people play music, you know. So yeah, I was really attracted to music and not so much the bassoon. And I, I even from the beginning, because you know, like I said, I you know, I sort of thought it was this other instrument, I kind of thought of the bassoon as uh as a medium, you know, as a you know, an instrument in quotes, you know, to express music. And um, something that came up uh uh you know, early on was trying to sound on the bassoon the way I heard other people sounding on other instruments. Well, it started all, all started with the English horn, of course, but because of my great interest, I just listened, listened, listened. The the, the library in the city I, I was growing up in, San Diego, by the way, uh, had a, you know, a collection of records and scores and things, and that's, I would go to the library, check things out, bring them home, and, uh, listen with scores and just absorb all these things and I would hear a lot of different kinds of playing, you know, bassoon playing, of course, you know, in this orchestra and that orchestra from the different recordings. Hear Oval playing, clarinet playing, violin playing, I listen to the great violinists of the day playing concertos. You know, when when you do that, what what happens is uh, when you know, when you, you sort of consume all of this, you know, music and the way people sound and how they Express the music and how they, you know, their musical ideas, you're, you're getting a kind of um, vocabulary that eventually coalesces in your mind and starts coming out of your instrument. And this is something that also was highly emphasized by my primary teacher in college, who was David Van Hoosman very, very uh, encouraging to all of us uh, to listen to the great violinists and the great pianists and the great singers of the day and just to notice how they do things, what they sound like, how they they, uh, phrase uh, the level of artistry, the quality of the artistry, the competency, all of that. And so when I went to study with Ben Husen, actually that, that was a kind of a natural fit, because I've already been doing that. So uh, I'd have to say, you know, in, in my playing over the course of my life, uh, not only the, the kind of sound or tone that I want to produce, but the way of playing uh, itself is uh, something that is, uh, you know, coming from an imagination that i put together from not only listening to bassoonists and taking lessons, But also, you know, listening to David Oistrock play the Beethoven Violin Concerto. You know, this is heaven. Listening to singers like Dietrich Fischer-Dieskau and Fritz Wunderlich and Ellie Ameling, these are all leader singers who I was very, very uh, fond of. Italian singers like Pavarotti, pop singers, Barbara Streisand is a huge influence on me, I have to admit. Frank Sinatra, too. Um and others, uh, all of these things are kind of swimming around up in my head there, and then somehow it, it comes out of the bassoon. I don't know how exactly, but uh, that's kind of how it works. And, uh, you know, uh, something that I uh, 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 work with my students on is an understanding of where this sound comes from, actually, because this is what I'm talking about, is where your sound comes from as an artist, uh, on any instrument. And my definition of sound might be a little different, but it, basically it's that the sound of any instrument is a combination of its tone and the expression of its performer. It's not mm-hmm. just its tone, you know, it's the combination of things. And, uh you know, when you've got all that music swimming around in your head and, you know, you've, you've listened to uh, Oistock play the funk sonata, 79,000 times and you've heard Dathan Milstein's recording as a Bach major not hundreds of times and you you know this sort of thing you know it's just going on it's swimming in there you can't help but find something that goes beyond the bounds of, of you know the, the usual and I think that's a very important component in, in uh, one's growth as an artist
2: um, I'd love to hear more about uh, your schooling. What was your education like?
4: Well, as I mentioned, I started taking lessons uh, when uh, the youth orchestra conductor switched me over to bassoon. And um, I studied with the fellow who was principal bassoonist of the uh, San Diego Symphony at that time. He was Judy LeClaire's direct predecessor, by the way. She played there for a couple of years also after we graduated from college. Yeah I studied with him for uh, two or three years in high school and when it came time to uh to apply to, to college uh I had an experience which I think is very unlike what young people experience today which is that I pretty much knew where I wanted to go to school uh you know from the get go both of the conductors of my youth orchestra had uh, been students at Eastman they were graduates and so we were hearing about Eastman all the time, Eastman this and Eastman that. I had met uh, a student of Mr. Van Hoosen uh, who, uh, uh, who had come out to California to do a music festival, and uh, I was introduced to her, and I had uh, heard a lot about about Mr. Van Hoosen and, and, and uh, the situation at Eastman from her, and it, and it all sort of captivated me, and I thought, hmm, well, you know, that seems to be the place to go, so... I applied there, and that's the only place I applied. And that's what people, you know, can't possibly conceive of today. Uh That was a pretty risky thing, actually, when I think back on it. Mm-hmm. I really don't know what I would have done if it hadn't worked out. Um, I may, might have, you know, gotten a, a day job or something and maybe try it again. Who knows? But anyway, I got it. So I went out to Eastman and did the audition and... Um, That was kind of a big deal back then, in the 70s, flying from California way back east and and doing that. When I think back on it, it was... um, But anyway, that's how uh, it all started. So then I went to Eastman and um, started studying with Mr. Van Hoosen. So Mr. Van Hoosen was really my my only main teacher. You know, I did study with a bunch of uh, other people, uh, like in private lesson situations. After that, after I'd started playing professionally. But so, you know, when I went off to Eastman, this was it. This was the four years when I was really in training. And, um, I mean, it was, it was really a fantastic thing. I mean, I was an 18 year old naive person, basically got off a plane and went to this place. And something that, uh, I think is not well known, uh, uh, uh or, or considered is that Eastman is a little different from a lot of music schools in that the facility there, you know, the Eastman School and the, its concert halls and so on and so forth, is the cultural center of, of a region, uh, you know, of, of upstate New York. I mean, the Rochester area, this area around here, um, you know, has a population of close to a million people. And um, pretty much most of what's going on culturally is happening right in that school. And I don't mean the school alone, the school uh, events alone. I mean everything. I mean every touring orchestra that comes through plays there. The uh, Rochester Philharmonic plays there. There are uh, four or five different concert series featuring string quartets and piano soloists and this and that and the other thing. that are all happening all within the school, and this is for both the school and the public. So when you land there as a kid, it's just... You know you're in this um this center this center for the arts, so it was incredible I mean it was just it was uh especially for somebody like me who really um just loved music just so much and um there was so much to digest so much to consume and digest it artistically another thing uh about uh studying the soon there was that um well, first of all, I mean, there was a fantastic group of peers. I, I mean, I just mentioned uh, Julia LeClaire and I were, were there together. And, you know, we were one year apart, so we did quite a bit of playing together. And there were there were many more besides that. Barry Steves was there, and Betsy Sturdivant, who was principal in Columbus, and a person a couple of years older than me had a long career in the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. And Kathy Reynolds, who's another wonderful professor at the... University of North Texas was another student there, with me. and the list kind of goes on and on, Of course, we were all kids, no one knew that anybody was going to become anything, but the kind of people that were there very serious musicians and people who played very well, so that was a great, great uh influence you know all of that made it a lot easier to work on a high level. Another thing that uh, was a great advantage, I think was that uh Eastman had a long history of a kind of a school of playing of the soon. It is called the Eastman School of Playing. Um, that goes back to long before Mr. Van Hoosen's time, actually. He was part of that himself. He also studied there, and uh, he grew up in that. His teacher, Vincent Pepsi, was the first teacher there. He started in the late 20s and retired in mid- mid-50s sometime, and... Uh, he had taught. I mean, when I was a student at that time, back in, in those days, his former students, Petsy's former students, were principal in Chicago, Cleveland, the New York Phil, the National Symphony, many, many other smaller orchestras. Norman Hertzberg was his student that studied there. Lauren Glickman. I don't know if you, you know these names, but they're they're people who were very prominent at a, in in my teacher's generation, the generation before me. And so Mr. Van Hoosen was kind of the steward of the school of playing at that time. And uh, we were all, you know, all of us that were studying together, we were all studying uh, the same things. We were making leads in a similar way. We were like, being exposed to how to think about music and how to approach playing bassoon in a very similar way. Also techniques of playing the bassoon, all the things that make up a something you could call a school of playing. We were all sort of doing the same thing, and we were in the same boat, and, and there's some kind of a, a, a good effect when that is happening. You, it's, it's a lot easier to... You can learn from everyone around you because everybody's kind of on the same page. Mm-hmm. That was a wonderful, wonderful experience and a streamlining experience because I could just look up to a, a People a couple of years older than me when I was an underclass person and, and listened to how they, they sounded and how they articulated and how the way they moved their fingers and all the whatever, you know, all of the little points of, of what caused people to sound certain the way they did. And I could learn from that. And then later, when I was one of the older students, the same thing, just kind of being passed down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is something I've, I've, uh, uh, Always done in my own work as a teacher is to try to create, a, you know, a studio uh, school of playing that that everybody is doing, and that uh, so that you know, students can learn from each other as much as they learn from their teacher. So this was an, another feature of uh, of the education there that was absolutely wonderful. Mr. Van Husen, um was a great teacher. Uh, and to describe what lessons with him were like, uh, for me, uh, I imagine it wasn't exactly the same for everybody, but, uh, I heard, that, you know, some similar things from a lot of other people, so I think this is pretty good information. He was incredibly painstaking, incredibly detail-oriented. So, for example, you'd go to a lesson and, you know, you're, what you, the, what you're supposed to play in the lesson is an etude. That was mainly what we studied, etudes. And, uh, of course, orchestral music, too. A little bit more later on in the process, the orchestral music would be emphasized more. But it's essentially a lesson was uh, an etude. So you would go there and play a phrase and then maybe a second phrase. <laughs> We're talking <laughs> a two-page etude here. Okay? <laughs> We're talking maybe one or two lines of music. And then the lesson would begin. And, you know, uh, 55 minutes later, you know, you're kind of exhausted. And you, you've been, like, attacking the first note for five minutes just to, to get it just right. And okay. Every nuance, every volume change, every, every articulation, every, you know... Uh, velocity of the vibrato, the intensity of the every, everything that goes into playing this one phrase would, would be what, what, what the, the hour was about. And that was kind of how it went. And it required you to play well. You could not get away with <laughs> not playing well with this guy. And, um, you know, that kind of teaching and that kind of approach... Uh, just really, uh, it 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 causes you to to up your level every week, mm-hmm. and um, and to go beyond the usual kind of level of bassoon playing. I mean, one of the uh, one of the philosophies that he held dear, and and I do as well, is that the bassoon should be played on as high an art, uh, an artistic level as any other instrument. I mean, like a violin or a piano, mm-hmm. uh, just as beautifully, just as in tune, just as artistic. In other words, we shouldn't just give in the bassoon being the way it tends to be—funny or clowny—or unless that's in the music.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So th- that's kind of what my uh, my uh, education was like. It was a lot of listening to violinists and pianists, and a lot of details. Uh, and reed making, of course, I mean, he, he taught us all how to make reeds. Some of us uh, did a little better with reed making than others, uh, but it's, uh yeah, it was pretty much all there.
3: So a lot of students will follow up their undergraduate degree with some graduate training, but that, as you mentioned, wasn't the path that you took. Uh, could you talk to us a bit about embarking on your early career?
4: I think in our time... Um, it wasn't, uh, for win players, it was kind of, uh, not really, uh, a given that, that you would do graduate study like it is now. And, you know, there were, there was an upside and a downside to that. The up, I mean, in the way we thought about it. The upside is that if you're planning to get a job, you know, when you graduate from your undergrad and start working as a professional, you know, there's a really good chance that will happen. You know, if you're, if you're, if you're absolutely convinced that 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 isn't going to happen, that you're going to go to grad school, then it probably won't happen. So that's the upside to it. Uh, you know, people were thinking, this is how it has to be, you know. Uh, and the downside of that is that if you need a little bit more polishing, uh, with uh, instruction, anyway, um, you're probably not going to get it if you don't go to grad school, right? So... But, um uh, a lot of us um, it was really our goal to to get employed and um and that was what I tried to do. Um, I had started taking some auditions when uh I was in my senior year there, and um I got pretty close in a couple of them. I was a runner up for a job in Fort Wayne, Indiana, I seem to remember, and there was also a job down in Mexico that that, uh, I, I was a runner-up for, but I didn't have a job at the moment I graduated, you know. And, uh, so I actually, uh, 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 applied to Northwestern University to, uh, for a graduate study with the person who was then principal in Chicago, who was, as I mentioned, a student of Vincent Petsy, who was sort of like in the family a little bit in terms of style. That was Willard really Elliott. And um, so I, I applied to Northwestern, and I, I got, you know, a master's spot there, and um, and I was planning to go do that. And uh, then uh, somewhere in there, you know, in the sum- during the summer, I got recruited by the University of Nebraska to come in as a TA uh, in the master's program uh, so that I could serve then the, when the soon teacher went on sabbatical, which was going to happen in the second semester of that year. I mean, back then, uh, somehow you could get a master's in one year. <laughs> it was a one-year program. I, I'm not sure how, how that worked in those days. Now it, it seemed to all be two years. But anyway, um, so I thought, oh, this is a job, you know, um, uh I was also supposed to re- replace the person in, uh, in the Lincoln Symphony, which is where he played when he was on sabbatical. So I, I withdrew from Northwestern and uh, went to take this thing in Nebraska, um, because you know I, I would get a professional experience from it. So I went there. and uh, during the first semester, I was there. I got offered another job that I had auditioned for before that, which was a a principal bassoon job in the Singapore Symphony Orchestra. Now, this is where you guys say, what, Singapore? How did that happen? (laughs) The the place is really far away, you know? Uh It was a really awesome place, too, by the way. So anyway, um, one of the great perks of being a student at Eastman, actually, is this group, the Eastman Wind Ensemble, which is a famous group, and... You know, deservedly so. It's, you know, got a lot of history behind it. And, uh, in those days and in, and still today, uh, the Eastman Ensemble does quite a bit of touring. So, right the day virtually after graduation, I graduated Eastman, uh, the Eastman Women Ensemble went on a six week long tour of the Far East. And, uh, the bassoon section was, was Julia Claire and myself. And, um uh, and you know, they were all the, the kids that, you know, we'd been going to school together. We were all friends and it was, it was just tremendous fun. And, uh, uh, we played a lot of challenging music on that tour, actually. Uh, it wasn't just, you know, a bunch of band music. It was, uh, you know, we had the Stravinsky Octet and some other smaller ensembles that were you know, very challenging. And, we went on this long, long tour, and part of it was was in uh, in, in Singapore. We were in there in, in Singapore for maybe uh, three or four days, something like that. And during that time, there was an audition held uh, for positions in the Singapore Symphony. And um, they came to us and asked uh, us if we were interested in auditioning. And about, I don't know, 15 or 20 people, like half the East Moon Ensemble, went and did an audition. And uh, I, I did that as well. And then, you know, months later, four or five months later, we all got contacted, or not all, the ones they chose got contacted. And so uh, I got contacted while I was there in Nebraska. And I thought, oh, this is a playing job in an orchestra. That's what I really want to do. So I also withdrew from my position in Nebraska. So at this point, just imagine, you know, this like 22 year old person, uh, not only blows off Northwestern University, well my, my, my son is now a student by the way.
2: <laughs> Aww. <laughs> I,
4: I blew off, you know, this, this really good situation in Nebraska and, you know, I've got like enemies <laughs> all over the place already, you know, in, here, here in academia. And, uh, but, you know, I was just following my, I don't know, this... I was taking advantage of the opportunities that I had and uh so I shipped myself off to Singapore and played there for a year. I played there for one one season and um there were I think 10 other people from 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 that group from the East Moon ensemble. We all just sort of went there and became about half of the wind and brass section there. And uh after the year I I uh was leaving and um I uh wrote to a friend of mine up in Japan. and uh, Eastman when that's all, had been in Japan, too. He spent uh, three weeks there playing concerts, and there were a bunch of reviews of us and things like that. And um, I had a friend uh, in Japan who was someone I knew from the United States, actually. Uh, it was Ryōhei Nakagawa. A lot of people will know his name. Uh, uh, he was a teacher at Aspen for many, many years, and also for a while he was uh, he was a member of the Uh, uh, San Francisco Symphony. So he was a kind of a prominent bassoonist in Tokyo. And I I wrote to him saying, you know, uh, Mr. Nakagawa, I'm uh, going to be passing through Japan and visiting uh, on my way back to the United States. Could I meet with you and and play for you? And, uh, of course, this was snail mail, you know, with, with stamps. You know, so letters take you know a while you know to go from one country to another. And I wrote that, and, you know, a week or two later, I got a, uh, an answer, and uh, and he says, "Oh, it would be great to see you." And by the way, this orchestra, the New Japan the Philharmonic, is searching for uh, the principal bassoon position, and would you like to try out? And uh, and you know, I write back like hell yes, you know, like <laughs> in like capital letters. You know and send it and uh, and so, I mean, I don't know how I got so lucky, but this this is what happened, and he he talked to some people there, and uh, one thing led to another. I got contacted by their management, and uh, they set up a trial for me. so i when I went up there, I actually was then going to try out in in an orchestra for another job, so. Uh, the orchestra, uh, it was based in Tokyo, the New Japan Philharmonic. I played for a month there, and, uh, things went pretty smoothly. And then at the end of that period, I had an audition for the, uh, music director, who was Seiji Zawa. He was 40 years old then, and a very, very great conductor. And, um, and then they hired me, and I spent the, for the next four seasons playing there as principal bassoon. So that's how my, my career got started. I, I, had these two foreign jobs, uh, which were, uh, both great experiences, you know, for, in different ways. I mean, the orchestra in Japan was a, you know, a really fantastic orchestra, and they still are. We had great, uh, programming that was very adventurous. You I mean, Ozawa would do a lot of things he couldn't pull off with the Boston Symphony. You know, things like crazy things like you know, semi-staged operas that wasn't being done much back then, and uh, a lot of modern pieces. And um, he would also try things out there that he hadn't done before. So we did a full Mahler cycle, and the programming was 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 really really interesting and fun. We had uh, all of the big soloists of the day, Rudolf Serkin, through. I mean, people who then you know ended up in my head as part of this team of influences that I mentioned before. Um, We had Martha Argerich and Yehudi Menuhin, who was an old man at the time, but one of the great, great violin artists of the 20th century. It just went on and on like that. So it was a really fun job to do, Um, and that's how I got started. I mean, I didn't stay more than four years.
2: So Eventually, you ended up at Oberlin Conservatory, and you were the bassoon professor there for 28 years. Can you talk a bit about how you got that job and perhaps some defining moments from your time there?
4: Well, um, when I uh, first started, uh, immediately preceding when I first started Oberlin, I was freelancing in Boston. This is what I did after I left, left uh, my job in Tokyo, and um, I mean, I was looking for a full-time job at uh, it's I was freelancing freelancing over a six-year period. And uh, uh, in 89, uh, there was a bassoon search there at Oberlin, and I had heard about it, um, but I didn't apply for it because I uh, didn't think there was any chance I could get it. I I, I didn't have full-time teaching experience and so on and so forth. I didn't have a master's degree, et cetera. So um, I just kind of let it go, but uh, what ended up happening was that they uh, contacted a lot of uh, important teachers from that time and to get uh, references, uh, and uh, they, they contacted Mr. Van Hoosen, my teacher, and he suggested they check me out, and, um, and after another meeting or two, I, I guess they gave me a call. So I got a call. And this just came out of the blue. And I'm just, you know, I, I kind of couldn't believe it. And I said, oh, yeah, Overland, that's a really great place. Um, yes, I'm very interested. You know, that kind of thing. And, uh, and one thing led to another. I did, uh, I ended up going there and um, did the day of, you know, playing a little concert and doing some teaching demonstrations and interviews and so on and so forth. And uh, then they hired me. So, um couple of days later, I got a call, and uh, I was kind of like a young person that they invested in as a someone that might turn out well uh, in the long run. And um, so that's how I got started there. Um, yeah, um, well, uh, you know, it, uh, I have to say Oberlin was a, an absolutely great place to be. I mean, uh, there were fantastic colleagues there. I mean, my oboe colleague, was James Caldwell, for example, one of the great teachers of his generation and great players of his generation, too. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, the you know, the first day of faculty orientation, you know, I mean, I, I've been living there for, you know, like four days or something, and I go to this faculty orientation, and the first person I meet is Robert Spano, who, you know, now is the long-term music director of the Atlanta Central Orchestra, mm-hmm. And he was on our... Um, faculty. He was the opera conductor. He and I were hired at the same time. We were in faculty orientation together, actually. That's <laughs> how I started the story. So, you know, we, we just we met, and you know, we're super compatible. He and I, we, we became really good close friends. We ended up playing, I don't know how many recitals together. He's a wonderful pianist. I don't know if we knew that. And then, in the same orientation, I met Alex Klein. He uh, had been a student at Oberlin. He just, had just graduated the year, uh, the, the year before with an artist diploma. He had already won the Geneva competition at that point. And uh, Jim, my colleague Jim Caldwell, uh, I guess pulled some strings and got it arranged so that Alex could could work at Oberlin at least for a while as a kind of like a, a, a another oboe teacher. And um, and so there we were, and then there were plenty more colleagues besides Bob and Alex too. But, you know, I, you know, got, Alex and I, uh, started a chamber group. Did, oh, the next three or four years, we played bunches and bunches of concerts with, with the clarinetists there. And, um, and those experiences, you know, working with Bob, working with Alex and a lot of other people and Jim Caldwell were really very formative. In uh, a lot of different ways, so it was really, really fantastic, uh, you know, to be, to have found myself in that position. And also, it was a nice, it's a good job. You know, they pay you for it all. <laughs>
2: <It's, you> know,
4: <laughs> the, che- the checks just just roll in. It's not like you know, you're, where you're not sure how much you're going to make next month. You know, hopefully you'll make a right. kind of thing. Uh, so that was kind of handled. And um, and then you know, um, you know about uh, building the studio and all that. Um I took the Eastman School of playing there with me. I mean that's this st- that's the style of playing I was taught and that i that I uh, you know had spent my my whole life working within and uh, I started teaching people like that and um you know um it takes a while to to get a reputation as a teacher and i I am eternally grateful to to Oberlin for taking for investing in me and um and also that place was a place that that one could build a really a really fine studio and a, a fine school of playing. And uh, you know, it took a number of years and uh um, but I'm very, very proud of many, 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 many all of my former students that, that I've had there. I mean, one of my early students a matter of fact, the very first one, the only student I had actually when I first arrived there was Nick Custer. She was a freshman. You know who Nick Custer is? I'm sure. Of
2: course, yeah.
4: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and uh, you know, on, soon on on the heels of Nick Custer, a few years later, Monica Ellis came okay. to Oakland to study. It Was the the, the soonest in the money wins and and then you know, I had I had some wonderful students like that, you know, from the very beginning, uh, and then as time went on, uh, more and more people, I guess, trusted what was going on there, and 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 that's how it sort of built up but there's also um you know uh, there was a tremendous amount of support from the school you know, scholarship mm-hmm. support and also uh, I I did a lot of other things outside of Oberlin I did a lot of teaching uh in different places I taught at the Interlock Arts Academy for a while commuting up there I started teaching in China in about uh oh 2000 or 2001 I did about a 10 year stint as a guest teacher at the Central Conservatory I came to contact with a lot of very fine talents there who then ended up at Oberlin. Um, I also did quite a bit of uh, traveling to Venezuela over about a seven-year period uh, when I was on the faculty at Oberlin, working with El Sistema there. And uh, that was also a very, very fun and influential experience. So, yeah, defining moments. I mean, every moment is a kind of defining moment, isn't it?
3: <laughs>
4: certainly uh playing uh playing uh concerts with with bob spano and with alex klein and sometimes all together the three of us that was pretty defining
2: that's I pretty think. special
3: so after 28 years at oberlin you moved to rochester last fall to begin teaching at the eastman school uh how did this opportunity come up and what made you decide to make that move
4: well uh, as you know I, i'm an alum of Eastman, and um, I always have always had a very, you know, soft spot in my heart for this place. And uh, you know, uh, 28 years is a long time to be in one place, and it's kind of hard to explain. You know, uh, there's this Chinese proverb that roughly goes: "Trees die when they move, but people die when they stay in in the same place." Or maybe it's not that. You know, maybe it's not die. Maybe it's you know, trees don't do well when they move. People don't do well when they stay in the same place, mm. and I, I kind of felt that a little bit. Uh, I felt like, okay, you know, I'll, this has been great; it's been an absolutely fabulous ride here, uh, and uh, maybe, you know, there's maybe if I a new challenge would be a really, really awesome thing for me at this at that point in my life. And like, um, you know, I was th- I had been thinking that for a little while actually before the Eastman opening happened um and uh and then it happened, and they recruited me, and I kind of resisted because i, I you know it, it took me a little while to come around think to think that you know that could be a really great thing for me and and for my whole family actually you know i just I changed the scene of living in a different kind of place and so on and so forth, so eventually um i I came to think that yes, you know. Even though you know I'm, you know I'm, you know such a big part of me is is all laced up with, you know, sewn together with, with Oberlin, but um, I think it might be a, you know an actually good good thing to do this move. So I I took some steps and let them know I was interested, and one thing led to another, and I ended up getting hired here. Um, so that's kind of how that went. And, uh, the decision to make the change is really just about what I mentioned, you know. It's, uh, um, uh, I, Eastman is a particular kind of place. It's different from Oberlin and vice versa. And, uh, it's an environment that, uh, uh, uh is challenging to me because I was so used to the one I was in before. And so, I actually work a lot more here at Eastman, it's it's more, uh, there's more things to do. There's there's a few more students, uh, There's uh, people are much more, uh, well, I, I hate to say that uh, they're more industrious, but it kind of looks like that, either that or everybody's faking it.
3: <laughs> <laughs> people are really,
4: really busy. Yeah. <laughs> So anyway, I, I actually feel like I have a lot more to do, and um, you know, it's invigorating. So um, I'm kind of, uh, uh, you know, trying to move my operation here, and I, I, I think I've got it going pretty well. I have a really nice class of students right now, and uh, we've got a lot of applicants. As a matter of fact, uh, today I have to go through all of the audition materials because our audition season just came to an end yesterday. I wow! Record it. I always record everything, and then we listen to it just to make sure you know I like, you know what I'm doing uh, when I fill out forms and things.
2: hmm So, with your busy teaching job and all the playing that you do, you've still found time to recently commission three can charity, record a CD, and write a book. How did those projects come up?
4: Okay. Well, um, the the, the the works uh, that were commissioned, uh, you know, they're not all recent. Uh, they they were stretched out over a period of time. The three works actually are a concerto by Alex Blechinger, who is a, a Viennese composer. That was that came about in 1997. Uh, 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 I met Alex when I was on sabbatical. I was visiting Europe. And I was in Vienna. He is a uh, we have a mutual friend who's a conductor, and, and this is this guy is a very prolific composer. He is a, you know, uh, the bassoon concerto he ended up writing for me is Opus One Hundred and Eleven. Uh, and anyway, I did him a favor. I recorded some little pieces that he had written for bassoon, so he would have recordings of them. And uh, and you know, uh, 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 after I did that, he said, "Well, you know, what would you, what can I do for you, you know, to to pay you back?" And I said. Well, why don't you write a five movement concerto that's thirty minutes long? And I was kidding,
2: <laughs> <laughs>
4: you are totally kidding, right? Uh oh. <laughs> and, and he did it. <laughs> so like, you know, and, and this was back in you know, '97 ish, right? So uh a few months later, like my fax machine turns on one day, and you know, I think I got like five faxes in my entire life. I don't know if anybody remembers fax machines, but anyway, he says it turns on and. 30 pages of bassoon music starts coming out. You know, it's just spewing out, and it's this concerto. It was five five movements long. So anyway, that's the Blechinger Fagott concert, and uh, that one got recorded uh, about a year after that, because Alex, uh, uh, the composer Alex Blechinger, uh, created some a situation in which uh, it could be performed and recorded over there in, in Europe, in, in Vienna, and and in Hungary. The recording actually happened in Kiev, in, in, in Ukraine. So um, then the other uh, concerto, uh, the next one was the Peter Schickele's Bassoon Concerto. Uh, and in those days, I was a member of an orchestra in Columbus called the Pro Musica Chamber Orchestra, and they had uh, a commitment to commissioning new works, and uh, our conductor, Tim uh, Russell is his name, was... Uh, a friend of Peter Shickley's, and he had gotten another work from him before that. So that one was his idea. He raised money for it uh, from the board and other people in Columbus, and um, so that piece was commissioned by the Pro Music at Chamber Orchestra for me to play, commissioned uh, from Peter Shickley. Uh, that one we just recorded uh just recently on, on my my newest cd so uh that it took a a while to get that one recorded but I did get to play it an awful lot in the first few years it was around um the next uh, 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 uh and last you know concerto uh that uh, that uh you know is associated with me I guess is um a piece by libby Larson libby is a a, a close friend of mine actually we we have, Met uh, at Interlochen one year, and, uh, and I was teaching there in the summer. And, uh, uh, I played some other works by her, and, uh, uh when, uh, this, uh, CD project, uh, came up, uh, came up, uh, the CD I'm talking about is called Full Moon in the City, which is the same name, the, the same title as the, uh, piece that Libby Larson wrote for us. Um, when the CD project, uh, got started, we had to find four works for bassoon and orchestra that hadn't been recorded. That was the idea. So I had the Schickly there, and the Blechinger was already done, so we didn't use that. Uh, the Schickly, a piece by Russell Platt, uh, who is uh, an alum, an alumnus of Oberlin, and also, uh, the partner of Peter Kolke, a famous bassoon player. And, uh, he had a concerto which he had put together for for Peter, and we recorded that. And, uh, there was another piece by, uh, uh, Lee Thomas in the pipeline, which was not been for me, but, uh, we got the recording rights to it. That's the concertino for bassoon and ensemble. And then finally, uh, we, uh, Oberlin commissioned Libby to write, uh, Full Moon in the City, which is a three-movement work for, uh, bassoon and string orchestra. So that's a, a brief, <laughs> explanation of the three commissions. Uh the C D uh that I'm I've been talking about is uh came out uh two years ago, I think. Uh it's called Full Moon in the City. Uh it can be uh downloaded and all that and you can get a physical copy if you want to. Uh and but it it, it is a, a recording of those four works that I just described with various uh Oberlin ensembles. The Oberlin Orchestra is playing the Shickele concerto and the there's another group, the Oberlin Sinfonietta, plays the Platt Concerto, and then Libby's piece and Augusto E. Thomas's piece uh, were both recorded by the Contemporary Music Ensemble at Oberlin. That was a, a really fantastic project that, um, you know, I wanted to do all of these things, but they sort of just happened. You know, I think that's, that's how to make things happen in your life, by the way, and this is advice I give students all the time if you dream if you think of things if you if you have a uh a, you know a a clear idea of what you'd like to see show up in your life it doesn't magically show up but it does show up because you you find yourself taking steps towards these things and and then eventually you know things happen and that's exactly how all of those pieces and uh this CD came to be another CD that uh I, I've got out there is, uh, well, the Blechinger Concerto, of course. And uh, another one is uh, the IDRS 25th Anniversary CD, which was an incredible stroke of fortune that that fell on me somehow back in uh, 97. Now it's almost the 50th anniversary of the IDRS, but then it was the 25th. Uh, of course, they, they produced the CD at that time, and uh, I'm pretty sure that that CD is probably the has the widest distribution of any double read record ever, as far as I can tell. They still it's still for sale. Um, and Alex Klein and I uh, played the the uh, Phila Lobos duo on that. And I'm very proud of those things and they were they're also those are definitely defining moments in, in my career of all of those projects. And there's one more coming up actually the last project I did at Oberlin for their recording label is was a recording of the Hindemith Sonata uh, that will be coming out on a CD of all of the Hindemith uh, Woodwind Sonatas.
3: Could you also talk to us about your book, your readmaking book?
4: The book is called uh, Making Reads Start to Finish with George Zacchikini, and it is a, an iBook, which is, you know, a lot like an eBook. It's, a, it's electronic, and um, uh, it is published by a fellow who is a noble player called Kevin Chavez, he has some oboe books, well. And he approached me, uh, five, six years ago, I guess, about it. And, um, I worked on the book, uh, on the writing the text of the book and, and organizing mm-hmm. it over about a, a period of a year. Uh, and Kevin, the publisher, is was responsible for all the technology behind the book. And this is what is unique about it. It's a, a book that can exist in paper form. Uh, which is kind of unfortunate in a way. Um, but it does exist in, in this electronic version. And, and what an iBook can do is, what you can do with an iBook, I should say, is embed all kinds of multimedia stuff. So this book uh, has um, videos, video tutorials it has basically it's videos of me making reads and then talking over the video you know saying this is what's going on and so on uh it has a tremendous amount of photos that that you can interact with blow them up and mess with them it has a lot of diagrams it has sound files um uh and it has a very interesting navigation principle so uh This is a big, big project in my life, actually. And it's an ongoing one because this book is updatable. And we're just about due for an update. And I'm going to be sitting around working on it again soon. Um, The book is, you know, the point of it is that it's a readmaking book. However, when uh, the publisher approached me about it, uh, I basically said to him, I said, you know, nice idea. I love the technology part. Uh, you know, young people will love it because of that. But um, <clears throat> I don't really want to write a, a readmaking book because there's so many of them. Who reads them? You know, everybody makes reads their own way. And uh, but he he was really you know he really wanted to get this thing done. And uh, and I I kind of brokered a deal with him. I said, well look, let's make if, if if you're okay with me making this book mainly about playing with the Sims. And how that relates to making reeds, and how your reeds relate to your playing, and back and forth—that whole big, you know, combination of reed versus the way you play your reed and all that—then I'll do it. But I don't want to just make another reed-making book like like everybody else's, because there's so many of them. You know, it's like you don't really need another one. And he agreed to that. So what we have, what I what I ended up putting together is a book that has um, lots of chapters, nine chapters. The first two of which are completely about playing the bassoon and about, you know, the relationship between your playing and a reed. There's also uh, a section in here about something that we were talking about earlier in in the interview about uh, where your sound comes from, uh, uh, about uh, the three different playing styles that you see in the world. There's three different ways of playing the bassoon that I've observed in my travels. Uh, mainly has to do with where you put your embouchure on the reed. You know, there's kind of like three places you could, you could hold it. Uh, uh, the, so that, that's kind of the beginning of the book. Uh, a lot of talking about uh, the relationship between your reed and, and your playing and how they work together. The second chapter of the book is all about tone production. It's called the Art of Tone Production, and uh, there's a lot of information in there about how I play and how one should play to so that the reads that I'm going to explain how to make later will actually work for you, because you know you just can't take any old read and then play any old way and it works. You, they go together. So that's kind of one of the main main points of the book. So. A big chunk of this book is actually about playing with the suit. Some of it also there's a long chapter on tools and things, and there's tons of links to where you can get them. There's a chapter on read design, which is all about what is your read, what does it look like, what is it going to be like when it's done. And my philosophy of read making is just you know, you know, flowing throughout all, you know, all of the all of the chapters of the book which is that reed-making is a calculated and accurate execution of a chosen design created intentionally to complement a bassoonist style of playing, their instrument, and their requirements for music-making. So that's a long definition, but what I'm trying to say basically here is is that the way I approach making reeds is that a reed is a thing and is designed in a certain way and you should make do that every time you make the read. Not an improvisation where you just try to fix, oh, it's flat, so I'm going to do this. It's flat because your read isn't finished. It's sharp because your read isn't finished. That's the way I I approach things in general. Uh, so that's kind of like the theme that runs through all of this. So, we, it, the, you know, the, the chapters go from you know, making blanks to you know, doing the first day scrape to... Break in the break in process, to then the finishing process goes beyond that, and finally finishing touches. So you're just trying to make the reed just you know polish it to be that reed that you can use, and um, and then there's also a chapter on like techniques, how to use tools and things like that. So anyway, this was a a big project that took a, a big chunk of my my uh, attention for a while there, and uh, very happy with the result, and uh, some people are using it as a textbook here and there, and I certainly do. I mean, all of my students need to to have it.
3: Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Could we close by having you tell our listeners where they can find you on the Internet?
4: Sure, sure. I have a website. It is SakakiniBassoon.com. If you don't know how to spell Sakakini, it's S-A-K-A-K-E-E-N-Y. Uh, on the website, you'll see uh, some information on my on CDs and about the book I was just talking about. There's also a number uh, of recordings there and links to recordings. Uh, uh, there's also links to Spotify and things like that for, for, uh, for the CDs. There's some information on uh, my teaching philosophy. There's a section on my former students and links to their ages and so on and so forth, I'm, of course. You know, very close to them, very proud of them. Uh it was a very fun experience uh putting it together and um please check it out and uh you know, have a good time there.
3: Awesome. Thank you so much Wonderful. for coming on the podcast.
4: Thank you too so very much. It's been a real pleasure to get to know you, and I hope I can run into you somewhere.
2: Of course. I hope so too. <laughs>
3: You can find us on all the social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can listen to us on YouTube, SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes Podcasts, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts.
2: Also, you can look forward to a wonderful interview with Nicholas Daniel on the next podcast episode. See you then.